Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a look at the pros and cons of ASU's new partnership with OpenAI. And we'll meet a Valley comedian who's working to reach her dreams in New York City. But first, Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he's transported more than 100,000 migrants from his state to cities around the country, sanctuary cities, he calls them. The arrival of so many people has overwhelmed aid networks in many northern and western cities that aren't set up for it. And now it's sparking fears of a looming crime wave in many of these places. A recent brawl in New York City made headlines, as did Mayor Eric Adams joining a raid on an alleged robbery ring. So are such fears justified? Our next guest dug into the data to find out. Wei Hua Li is a data reporter for The Marshall Project, and she spoke more about it with my co-host, Lauren Gilger. So we've seen that since uh, 2020, Texas has been busing a lot of migrants uh, to northern cities like D.C., New York, and Chicago. And of course, Texas is not the only state that's doing it. Arizona is one of them as well. Um, and as a result, um, a lot of cities are really struggling with, you know, providing resources to migrants. And recently, we're seeing increasingly a lot of the narratives are leaning towards thinking that migrants are bringing more crime to the city and making these cities more dangerous. Okay. Using New York City as an example, um, many people have seen a video of uh, migrants getting into a brawl with uh, NYPD police officers at Times Square. And yeah. that was something that really seemed to hit a nerve for many, many people who already think that, um, you know, their cities shouldn't be dealing with an in, influx of migrants. Yeah. We also saw that in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has joined the um, NYPD on these uh, raids that were trying to bust migrant gangs. So that really increased the rhetoric uh, around immigration and crime. Um, yeah. And all of those prompt us to wanting to look into the crime data and see what data can tell us. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the data that you dug up here. You looked at this idea of, of linking immigrants and migrants and and crime, this idea of a, of, a, of a migrant crime wave. We've seen so many headlines describing this moment. What did you find? Of course. So um, we look at uh, data that's been compiled by the Council on Criminal Justice, which is a think tank that's been gathering crime data from more than three dozen cities across the country. And um, the four cities that we focus on in this piece were New York, Chicago, Denver, and Washington, D.C. These are four cities that, according to Texas, governor's office have received more than 10,000 migrants from uh, the state's busing programs. Mm -hmm. And when we plotted out these cities' crime trends and um, really added timestamps of when migrants started to enter the city, what we really found was there's no direct link of an influx of migrants and an increase of crime. In a lot of these cities, um, like New York and Chicago, we did see an increase in robberies and shopliftings, but those trends have started in 2021, long before any of the migrants has been bust into hmm. the city's borders. 
Tell us, you know, what is behind the recent uptick in certain kinds of crime? We saw sort of crime patterns shift during the pandemic and things seem to be sort of coming back to a different stable level that maybe was more true before the pandemic disrupted things. Where do we stand now in a lot of crime data? That's a really good question. And the answer is really depending on what kind of crime we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Um, On the bigger level, we're seeing a a larger return to normal, return to pre-pandemic trend across the board. Um, Using homicide as an example, during the pandemic, we saw a 30% increase in murders across the country. And, you know, since the beginning of the pandemic, that number had slowly been decreasing. And by 2022, it's almost around the pre-pandemic levels. Similarly to a lot of crimes like robberies and shopliftings that we talked about earlier, during the pandemic, because people are staying home and stores are all closing, the number of shopliftings really declined sharply. Hmm. And since then, we're seeing a a pretty steady increase Um, in many cities. That number is going back to pre-pandemic levels. But, you know, if we compare where we are in 2023 to 2022, there is an increase of shopliftings. But if we look further back into, say, where we are in 2019, really, you know, things are returning back to normal. Hmm. So why is there such a great disconnect, it seems, between the data, the facts, and this narrative that's so prevailing, even in these democratic and sanctuary cities, that migrants are the ones driving crime? That's such a good question. So if you look at the perception of crime and the reality of crime, there's been a really long disconnect. And the two trends almost never matched. Um, For example, before the pandemic, we saw a two-decade decrease of violent crime. That's pretty consistent. Hmm. But when we are looking at polling and surveys that ask people whether they feel safer in their community, an overwhelming number of Americans were saying, no, I actually felt that my city and my community is becoming more dangerous. Hmm. So that part isn't new. And the other thing is, because in recent years, we're seeing a you know, returning back to normal level of crime rates. Um, There is reality in the grounds that shows us a lot of crimes are actually seeing uptick. Um, Motor vehicle theft, for example, Mm -hmm. has been seeing a dramatic increase. And people are really primed to believe that crime is on the rise. When you tie that with an influx of migrants and reportings of um, individual migrants who did commit crime, it's really easy to associate the whole community with an increase of crimes. Yeah, that's why I'm reporting like this is so important. All right, we will leave it there. That is Weihua Lee, data reporter for The Marshall Project, explaining this to us. Weihua, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your reporting here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. ASU announced earlier this year that it would partner with OpenAI, the firm behind ChatGPT. In a release announcing the collaboration, ASU said it was the first institution of higher learning to do so and that it would, quote, empower faculty and staff to explore the potential of generative AI to enhance teaching, learning, and discovery, while also ensuring increased levels of privacy and security, end quote. But in a new column in the state press, my next guest asks whether the potential benefits of the new arrangement are worth the potential risks to students. 
Katrina Michalak is a sophomore journalism student at ASU and community and culture desk editor at the State Press. She joins me to talk more about this. And Katrina, what got you interested in this partnership between ASU and OpenAI? I was hearing a little bit about it. My colleagues at the State Press were, had written a couple articles about it. And then we kind of started digging a little bit. And when the news broke, I just... I just kept thinking that there were kind of a lot of holes. Um, There wasn't a ton of information at first released about what this partnership would look like, the logistics kind of like we're still figuring it out. But my first thought was that there wasn't a ton of information for the public to kind of know. And then my second thought was, okay, how will this impact students? Well, so what did you hear from students about, A, how they are using it or not using ChatGPT in their classes, and B, what they thought about the university entering a formal partnership here? So it's funny. I haven't heard a ton from my peers. It hasn't come up in friendly conversations or whatever. But for one of my sources I was interviewing, um, his name is Andrew Maynard, and he's a professor at ASU, and he said something really interesting that kind of stuck with me because he was teaching a class, uh, I believe, last semester, and he reached out to his students and was like, hey, like, what do you think of ChatGPT for student learning? And there were two responses in particular that he wanted to point out to me. The first one was that it was the student who's there to learn, right? Not the machine itself. Hmm. So... Why would they have the machine do the work for them if it got to that point? The second response was they were the one paying for this degree. So why are we going to make a machine do the work that they're supposed to be doing when they're putting the time and effort into this degree? So those were the two responses that he had pointed out to me. And those really stuck with me because I had these mixed emotions about ChatGPT, and I am a little bit concerned about how it could impact student learning, but it was nice to know that there are other students out there. Even if it's not coming up in daily conversation, they have those thoughts. What do you make of the fact that it it isn't really much of a topic of conversation unless somebody's specifically asking about it? Because we hear so much about how, you know, AI programs, ChatGPT specifically, are, you know, at least have the potential to really change the way college operates. I think, for me personally, I think it's a couple reasons. I think the first one might be because we're still kind of in uncharted territory here, we kind of don't know what the future implications are going to be. It's really hard to have a conversation about this technology when it's continuing to change, like literally as we speak right now. I think the second thing is we just don't know what to make of it. We don't have a lot of information yet about how it's going to impact our learning. And we can make assumptions or try to draw conclusions, but we really don't know where this technology is going to take us. What have you heard from the university itself? And you mentioned there's sort of a lot of questions about how this partnership would work and what it would look look like. Have any of those questions been answered so far? So... To my knowledge, there is no new news, but I could be wrong on that. Um, But I know with the partnership itself, 
Uh, beginning in February, researchers and faculty could submit proposals on how to use this technology. Um, and then students would potentially be able to submit proposals at a later date, which is unknown. Did you get the sense in talking to people that there's maybe sort of a wait-and-see attitude that people might want to see maybe what the first round of proposals looks like and then say, oh, yeah, well, how about this idea or that idea before sort of being the first one to to put their idea forth? I think so, yeah. And, I mean, for me, this is speculation, but I think it's hard at first because you don't have a lot of proposals to compare it to. Um you don't have a lot of other ideas to kind of bounce off of in the beginning. And this is one of my main concerns with ChatGBT is, like, what are the guidelines? Like, how do you draw the line between, okay, this use is okay, and then crossing that line and, no, that's unethical, or, no, we can't do that. And I feel like that guideline or that line is really unclear. I guess that makes sense. You kind of want to know what the rules of the road are before you say, hey, let's try it this way or let's try it that way. It's also kind of a scary thing. I think this technology is we haven't really learned how to harness its power yet. And I remember when I was talking to Maynard, he had taught a course about kind of using chat GPT and AI and like how students can really capitalize on that. Mm -hmm. And he's not teaching the course again. Um, it got outdated really quickly, right? It got – the technology developed so rapidly that the course essentially wasn't useful anymore for students. Ah. So based on both students and faculty members with whom you spoke, do you sort of have a sense of maybe how the university could be using ChatGPT down the road? Like what some of the ideas are for – potential uses, specifically maybe at ASU? Yes. I know one off the top of my head, a potential proposal could be the use of personal tutors, which I can see the benefit to that. I mean, I do think there are benefits to ChatGBT. Um, the use of a personal tutor could be helpful if, say, a professor is teaching a lecture with upwards of 300, 400 students. Mm. So... I understand there, like, why it might be beneficial. So that's one potential proposal. I would assume a lot of researchers might submit proposals to further their research, enhance the field that they're in. But again, a lot of that is kind of really unclear. Yeah. All right. Katrina, thanks so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Katrina Michaelak is a sophomore at ASU and the Community and Culture Desk Editor at the State Press. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a Valley native on why she decided to pursue a comedy career. We'll hear from the multi-talented comedian, writer, and actor about what it's like going from Phoenix to L.A. to New York City. But first, in a time when a lot of people in Hollywood are trying harder to tell stories in a more culturally sensitive way, our next guest says we're not protecting the right people by scrubbing racism out of past media. Alex Zaragoza is a journalist and TV writer covering culture and identity for De Los, the L.A. Times Latinx section. And in a recent column, she describes her own evolution with how TV writers, which she has been in her career, might better address the issue. My co-host Lauren Gilger spoke with her more about it. 
I had rewatched the Tijuana episode of the OC for a column that I was writing for the LA Times of Delos. I think it was the 20th anniversary. And so I was like, oh, let's like rewatch this mess. Let's see. <laughs> let's see how I feel about it at like age 39 as opposed to like 19. Yeah. And so um, I was watching it and I mean, it's completely ridiculous. It's super problematic, but also like kind of hilarious. <laughs> and well, I did an interview uh, on it and the interview like talked about like, oh, this just like wouldn't happen now or like. Now the the writers would add, like, the characters would have a person of color, there'd be a Latinx character. Yeah. And also just sort of implying that this wouldn't happen now, but also that we don't want it to happen anymore. We don't mm -hmm. want people, especially like white rich kids, talking this way about Latinos or about Mexico, about Tijuana, about anything. And so in that interview, I was like, well, like, if that's how they talk, I, like that's how they talk. Like yeah. if this is how these people talk about these this other community, why do we need to pretend that they don't? So to me, it was like, well, here we have these characters. They're very wealthy white kids. Nothing is ever challenged. So to me, it's like, okay, what would happen really is like you'd need somebody to challenge like, hey, man, this is not so bad. Like, hey, that's kind of racist, my guy, or, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. however they would write it, right? <laughs> and so, wow, I'm such a good TV writer. But like, I think it was interesting to me to have somebody position it that way of like, oh, this shouldn't happen, or this is not how people should talk about it. But yeah, that conversation got the wheels turning. Yeah, for it's, sure. it's so interesting, because we're seeing a lot of this, like you're seeing a lot of streaming services, a lot of networks, sort of scrubbing shows from not that long ago, from 10, 20, 15 years ago, you know, talking about you know, race, you know, like 30 Rock wanting to remove from streaming services all the episodes where characters were in blackface. Like, there are many examples of this and, and sort of the editing of things. It sounds like you're saying, like, we need to just tell the truth, even though it might not be great. Yeah, I think this gets to the central question of my column is like, who are we protecting? Because if we know, like, I as a Mexican person that was raised on the border, raised in both sides of the border, I know white people say really messed up stuff about Mexicans. Mm -hmm. I hear it all the time. Telling me that like acting like this is not how they speak is doesn't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. It only serves to like shield them and protect them. And it serves to cause like a deniability. This is not how people actually talk. And I'm like, but no, I hear it. I hear it all the time. Sure. I think it's also interesting in the case of like 30 Rock where it was like, you know, removing blackface, which, you know, obviously like not great. It wasn't great then, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And I understood like at the time what they were doing with it in terms of the comedy and they, it was a very subversive show. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, there's something to be said about how much as a society and as a culture, our perspective has shifted yeah. um, and how much we've come to realize the ways that we have harmed people, especially people from underrepresented backgrounds, you know, black, brown, indigenous people, Asian people, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so I understand wanting to fix your wrongs. It makes sense. I just don't see like in doing it this way, it just feels like a very easy, like, you know what we could do? We could just get rid of it and then pretend uh -huh. it never happened, make a statement and say how sorry we are. And then it's never there. As opposed to like, let's educate people. Let's throw up a card at the beginning of an episode. Like, hey, this has these images. Here's this website you should go to, yeah. to like, you know, understand why this is like not great, whatever. I believe like Disney Plus has been doing something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Which, um, 
I find because you know so much of the stuff we we watched growing up that was so formative had imagery and dialogue and storylines that were really really bad they were super problematic right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and maybe we didn't think about it then but now in hindsight we are and it's an opportunity to like learn for yourself but also like your children or your siblings or whoever it is yeah at the end of the day the the larger issue that needs to be addressed is not being addressed like removing something from an episode or pretending people don't speak a certain way doesn't actually change the systemic racism we face within Hollywood, within the world, mm -hmm. within everywhere. It doesn't change the fact that this is actually how people talk and this is what people believe. You so know? let me ask you, I, I love what you're saying. I think it's really fascinating. Like this idea that, first of all, we're supposed to be telling true stories, right? And representing people in real ways. And we shouldn't sort of whitewash that. But also, I wonder if you leave these things in, are you sort of running the risk that lots of people don't pay that close of attention and will watch this and accept this kind of casual racism that existed in all of these shows? Yeah. And see, that's the problem, because this is why you need like an additional person to be like the moral character in mm -hmm. a way. You know, as people were like, for example, rewatching The Office, mm -hmm. they were just like, oh, it's so funny. He's so funny. Like Michael Scott is not supposed to be like he was not written as a character that you should be like, that guy knows what he's talking about. That guy's really <laughs> like that guy really has his finger on the pulse of culture. Like he's a he's a buffoon. Yeah. And like he's inappropriate. This is not a person you're supposed to champion. The, but like totally. Totally, like no, no one on that show, for example, is like totally Michael. Like <laughs> you're right. We should be really mean to Oscar and like and offensive to Oscar, the one Mexican person mm -hmm. in the office. You know, I think the thing we have to remember is like as writers, directors, like the people that are in charge of making it is just like, what do we want the audience to take away from this? Mm -hmm. What do we want them to learn? How how can we do that through the tone of the show, through another character's dialogue? That's a really, right. that's an important distinction. So let me ask you then, Alex, like where does representation in making media come into this conversation? As you referenced before, like the the inequities in Hollywood are are still incredible. And probably contributing to these problems. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as somebody that's worked in Hollywood, that's, you know, pitch series, that's yeah. like in writers rooms, trying to do the work, you realize like what an uphill battle it is to get anything made or to get anything pushed through that it comes from written from the perspective of somebody of that, you know, cultural or racial background, or ethnic background, you know, like, if you don't give people the opportunity to make shows that speak to the culture that they know themselves, you're already operating from an outsider's perspective and you're already centering the white audience as like the base level audience. And that's, you know, frustrating, like being in a room or a writer's room, you know, that is like, okay, but like, we need to write this so that like white people get it. And so when you're writing from that perspective and you're only greenlighting shows or ideas or whatever from that perspective, it's going to skew what that work looks like. This is why I think we're constantly shouting from the rooftops, not just like Latinx, you know, creatives um, in Hollywood, but, you know, every other like underrepresented writer, creator, director, <laughs> actor. Mm. It's like, let us tell our own stories like <laughs> that creates just the, the widening gap of like what's represented to what's real. All right. We'll have to leave it there. Alex Zaragoza is a journalist and TV writer covering culture and identity for Delos, the L.A. Times Latinx section. Alex, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this column. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Jetta Jurians may not be a name you recognize yet, but the Valley native is hoping to change that. She's been working her way up the comedy ladder since leaving the Valley for L.A. at 19. She's appeared on the sketch comedy show Studio C and is currently a member of the comedy troupe The Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City. In addition to being a comedian, she's also a writer and actor. She performed in the pre-Broadway premiere of The Karate Kid, The Musical. I caught up earlier with Jury Anns to talk about her comedy career so far, and we started with whether she's someone who always knew she wanted to be in comedy on stage or in front of a camera. Yeah, I actually don't remember a time where I didn't want that. Um, Like, I'm sure I developed the desire at some point in my life, but I can't actually track when that happened. I just like have always wanted to do this and it was always kind of my dream. And so, you know, in my head, even as a kid, I was like actively trying to pursue this career. (laughs) (laughs) Were you somebody who as a child would try to make grownups laugh or make your classmates laugh? Oh, totally. I was uh, a certified try hard. I, I always say that I got into comedy because I have I have five sisters and uh, I just wanted to make them laugh. And so okay. that just kind of snowballed into me doing it in for my career. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it just always was my desire to make people laugh and entertain. When you were going to school, you know, high school, I, I understand you went to uh, to college briefly here in the Phoenix area. Like, did you do theater? Were you doing comedy stuff in, in school when you were here? Yeah, yeah. I um, I did theater all through high school. I was on my high school's improv team. And I think it was cool because I ended up getting cast as like the comedic relief parts. Okay. Um, Which really set me up for the career I wanted. Because normally, like when you're a young woman... I like I didn't see myself as like an ingenue or like a basic leading lady. Like I saw myself as like the wacky old lady who like enters in and says a few funny lines because that's what I got cast as in in high school. So when I moved to L.A. and I started pursuing acting as a career, um, I still kind of saw myself that way. And and in film and TV, it's not like I would really ever, (laughs) ever get cast as like a wacky old lady like the time for that is coming. It's just, you know, years and years away. Um, but like, because I like saw myself, I saw all the potential of like what I could do in this broad spectrum, the area that you can kind of be all of those wacky characters is in comedy, is in sketch comedy, is in improv. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that I was exposed to silly parts like that because I, I had that expectation going into my career being like, you know, I, I love playing an ingenue. I love playing really anything. But I was like, I, I want to be able to do all that crazy stuff that I know I can do because I got to do it when I was a kid. It's really interesting to hear you say that, you know, you were exposed to this broad spectrum of things, because I would imagine it wouldn't have been too difficult for you to also feel pigeonholed as kind of like the wacky neighbor, as you say, who comes in and says a couple funny lines, and then leaves again. But it seems like you really saw the bigger picture there and saw a lot of how there could be opportunity here beyond just sort of this one, you know, sort of typecast character. Right. Yeah. Like I think sometimes people uh, tend to put themselves into a small slot. And I think that's in a way like the nature of the industry, you really feel the need to brand yourself and say like, this is what I do. Um, But I always tell people not to limit themselves. I'm like, you, you really don't know what you're capable of until you try. And so even as a comedian, I try to like 
really seek out parts where I can be dramatic and like, you know, I'm classically trained. Like I, I still like to do um, things where I have to be dropped in and really challenged. And I try not to typecast myself because, you know, the industry is going to do that in its own way. And so I, the last thing I want to do is to limit my own potential. That's like the last thing I could do as someone who wants a, you know, fruitful career and an exciting life for myself. I want to always leave room for me to pursue every opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned you moved to LA, um, but you didn't like get a start in, you know, quote unquote, the biz at a super young age, right? Like your, your mom basically put, put some age limits on you before you could yes. like get representation and move to LA. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm so grateful for that now. Of course, as a 12 year old, I was like, you're ruining my dreams. Of course. But, but you know, I'm so glad she she always said, like, you can get an agent when you're old enough to go drive and get one. Because, you know, I've I've five sisters. I have a big family. I'm there wasn't a world in which um, everyone could accommodate getting me to auditions as a kid or as a teenager. And so I didn't get my first agent until I think I was like 17 or 18. Okay. Uh, and yeah. And then, and then I, I did a year of college and I kind of planned on going to college and doing the whole thing, even though I was, <laughs> I was not a very good student. <laughs> I was like very, very focused and set on acting. And so I would like ditch class and go like hang in the theater building and like, you know, whatever. Huh. And I'm, I'm grateful that um, my family believed in me enough to like kind of let me go off the the path and um, move to LA at 19, even though like that, the fruits of that labor didn't like pan out right away. Like it wasn't like I moved to 19 and then like Mr. Hollywood opened the pearly gates for me and was like, welcome, we've been waiting for you. Here's a, an Oscar. But like it, it more and more over the course of time became clear that like this is the, the right thing for me. And like, I did make the right decision in doing that. Um, and I'm just really grateful that my family was supportive of that, even though it was, I think, really tough on particularly my mom. Yeah. Well, so like, what was it like for you when you first moved out to LA and really got started? Because, you know, I don't have to tell you, show business can be really difficult. And as you say, it wasn't like, you know, they just threw open the gates and said, hey, welcome. You know, here's here's your, uh, you know, your best act actor role here. Right, right. Yeah, it was uh, it was really difficult. I think I think the the most difficult thing about it actually wasn't the industry itself. I think it was just being 19. Like being mm. 19 is weird. <laughs> you're just like <laughs> you're like supposed to be an adult and it's like all you've ever wanted. I just remember being a kid being like and one day I'll be, you know, an adult living in LA and I'll be able to do it. And then you get there and you're like, "Cool." Now what? <laughs> I think you know I was like really really broke. I was living in North Hollywood. I was like still really focused on like making friends and figuring out who I was and I didn't really know what you were supposed to do. I was a big like actor nerd. I was obsessed with like every aspect of the industry and then the moment that I finally just like let go of all the expectations and all of you know what I thought I was supposed to do once I finally just like let myself enjoy it and have fun and like do the thing I love. And that's really when things started to click for me and opportunities started to present themselves. That's actor, comedian and writer Jetta Jurians. More of our conversation in just a moment.
Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And now back to my conversation with actor, comedian, and writer Jetta Jurians. She grew up in the Valley and went to high school here. As we heard, she then moved to L.A. and is now in New York City pursuing her comedy career. Well, New York was kind of like a fun, exciting chain of events. Um, I like I like to say that, like, you know, for me my career has panned out with like little small windows opening over time. And I just sort of trusting my gut and following those windows. So New York was kind of one of those windows. I had this like deep desire to move here for whatever reason. Um, I mean, it's not completely random. I did like my first big theater project uh, like a year and a half ago, and it may be transferring to Broadway at some point. And I made a lot of connections out here. One of my agents is out here. And I had just done some work in New York and, you know, as a comedian, SNL is out here. So there were a lot Mm -hmm. of uh, good, solid reasons to move. But I think the biggest one of all was that I just really wanted to. And uh, the actors and writers were on strike uh, for the majority of last year. And so it just kind of felt like a good opportunity to do something scary and trust my gut. And so far, I've been like super, super happy with that decision. It's been wonderful. Well, it seems like, at least in one respect, it's really worked out in the sense that you've landed on Upright Citizens Brigade. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm, and that has been so fantastic so far. Um, and I, in general, I just the comedy that I've been able to do out here has been so much fun. I have a show tonight, even. It's just, uh, yeah, there's so much live comedy, live theater. And I'm still going out for the same TV and movie stuff that I was back in LA. Well, so the place you are now with Upright Citizens Brigade, like this is obviously a place that a lot of really well-known comics and comedians have come out of. Oh, yeah. Some of my absolute favorite comedians are UCB alum. And it's it's so exciting. I really like being I like being challenged when it comes to comedy. I like being in a room where I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone's so good and I'm growing and I'm learning and my brain is like firing off. And that's how it feels to be on my team so far. Everyone's just just wickedly funny and really welcoming. I mean, on my team, it's uh, the majority of the people on my team have been on uh, UCB teams before and they've just been super welcoming. And yeah, it's it's been fantastic. I'm so happy. And do you still have the dream of being on SNL? I do. It's such a finicky dream because it's so, I mean, it, it not different from any other show. It's There are only so many slots, but it is kind of a thing where, you know, they're trying to have a really fleshed out cast where everyone brings something different to the table. And so it is like so random who gets on and when, but I've seen that I've been, you know, for example, Chloe Feynman, I was a fan of hers for years before she was on SNL. See, seeing, you know, comedians that I'm peers with or that like I know makes it seem so much more possible. And yeah, I've been, I've my, my first audition for SNL, I was like 24. And so I've auditioned for, for SNL every year since. And every single time it's, it's just a dream, but it is a fleeting one. It's like one of those like smoke, like, you know, it's like <laughs> you're trying to catch it, but how and like when, um, but if it does happen, I think that, um, I will explode and become a star in the sky because it's, like, it's just my biggest dream of all time. Well, I mean, I, I would think that like for someone who does what you do, like I don't want to say that is the pinnacle because that would suggest anything else that you do is is not quite up to that. But like that's a really big deal if you're a comedian to be on Saturday Night Live. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it was the home base and the launching pad for so many great, great talents. And like, you know, for example, Tina Fey has turned it into Mm -hmm. a career where she gets to produce and she gets to direct and she gets to write and she gets to be the head writer. And those sort of things really light my fire. Uh, You know, like talent like Mindy Kaling, who Mindy Kaling even only wrote for SNL, I think for like maybe not even a full season, like half a season. And, uh, but like her career is one that I really admire because I really like to do everything. And so SNL kind of excites me in that way as well. Like the possibility to turn it into something more and uh, work with so many talented people. Well, it's interesting because it sounds like, yes, you definitely want to you know be on screen, but you also kind of want to be the boss. Totally, totally. Yeah, I think I didn't know that that was going to be the vision for myself when I moved out to LA when I was 19. But you, you try more things and you kind of learn more about yourself. And like, I think my dreams grew with me, I would try something and be like, wait, I like, really, really like that. I always say I'm an actor, but like my dream is to do everything at the same time. Like, I'm like <laughs> if, if it were up to me, I would be like the showrunner, the head writer, the actor, the producer, executive producer of a show. And that would be like my real, real dream. So you talked about how, you know, you, you know, your family has been supportive of your, your mom, you know, looking back now, you really appreciate, you know, how she sort of reined you in a little bit maybe when you were younger absolutely like are they do they come out and and see you in shows now are they able to to really appreciate like how far you've come oh totally I'm my family is my I mean like my home base they're the people I bounce everything off of they're the people I tell first about everything um I think I genuinely think my family has great taste so I really trust their instincts as well I um even this week I had an audition where I just was like, I sent it to my sisters. I sent it to my mom and I was like, what do you think? And, um, you know, my mom is the first phone call I make whenever I book anything. And she, she seeing them in the audience of anything, it just moves me. There was a video once of like, I did a musical in, um, LA for the Hollywood fringe festival. My sisters and my mom came out to see it and it was like an emotional show, but after the show ended, my sisters were sobbing and I just came out, started sobbing. <laughs> it's like <laughs> You would think we were like reuniting after the war. Like we were all like holding each other, quivering. They're just so supportive. I love them so, so, so much. All right. So I know that this question is kind of like asking a parent to pick their favorite child, but <laughs> if you were to be able to sort of have your dream job with a dream cast, like who are some people that you would just love to be able to work with? Oh my gosh, I'm so obsessed with that question. Well, okay, I there are so many, so many amazing female comedians I would love to work with. Dream scenario. Um, I, I'm going to use famous people, but okay. I, I also keep in mind that like if it were up to me, so many of my like real life friends would be in this project. Sure, but, um, of course. But for the sake of people listening, I won't be like you know my friend Sawyer. Everyone will be like, who is that? <laughs> um, but but I think I would love to work with Iowa Debris. Uh, I just admire the heck out of her. Um, Mindy Kaling. I, like co-producing a show with Mindy Kaling would be a dream come true. Uh, I love Quinta Burnson. I love, uh, oh boy, Rachel Sennett. I love, oh, there's so many amazing, honestly, Chloe Feynman. Um, okay. I love Lisa Gilroy. I love, there's so many, oh, 
Issa Rae. These are all just like female. <laughs> my, my dream, I think, would be to, uh, and most, the majority of the things I write are very female centric, but I think like an ensemble comedy with female comedians is like my ultimate end all be all dream. <laughs> like that's what I would, if, if, you know, suddenly a check for like, a bajillion dollars just floated down from the sky and landed in my hand. If I could make anything, it would be with all of those amazing women and just women in general. I just love female centered storytelling and I love female centered humor. All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Jetta Jurians, an actor, comedian and writer based in New York. Jetta, it was really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much and good luck. Thank you so much, Mark. It was so much fun. Joshua Kirpan is a little kid with a lot of energy, but getting around can be hard for Kirpan, who has Down syndrome. Enter Go Baby Go, a student organization at NAU. Working with a robotics team at a Valley High School, last year they gave the Gilbert boy a fun way to get from place to place. The show's Nate Boyle checked it out. Joshua Kirpan is an adrenaline junkie. You can tell by the way he drives his new off-road 4x4. Kirpin is five years old and lives with his family in Queen Creek. He has Down syndrome. If he wants to tell you something, he'll use sign language or type out a message on his iPad, and a robotic voice will take care of the rest. He has low muscle tone, and this makes it difficult for him to do things like sit up straight or walk for long distances. He recently received a very special gift designed to help him get around and have a ton of fun. It's a red and black truck, tailor-made for him to drive. Except it's a toy. You know the kind, like those pink Barbie Jeeps you see in TV ads. A motorized, child-sized car that's been specially modified to help Kirpin get around. And let him have fun going from place to place. A lot more fun than riding in a stroller. Kirpin's not the first kid to get such a gift. His car and others come from Go Baby Go, a national organization with a chapter at Northern Arizona University. We have connections with the community, and then a lot of the people that we find are just through word of mouth. So, for instance, the family that we're working with today um, is from a peer who had a nephew in need. That was Liz Butler, the former president of NAU's Go Baby Go chapter. And then we have alumni that um, goes out into the workforce and then they meet new people and new families that need cars to assist their kiddos with mobility. And so they reach back out to Go Baby Go and we're able to assist them with that. But the cars don't come ready-made for children with mobility issues. They have to be modified. That's where the robotics club at Saguaro High School in Scottsdale comes in. Using materials provided by both the school and Go Baby Go, the club makes the car accessible to kids like Joshua Kirpin. For Go Baby Go to be able to do our builds, we need people that have knowledge on kind of like electrical and just like mechanics. And so she thought it would be a great pairing to be able to come to Swara High School and give them the opportunity to learn about what occupational therapy is, but also be able to help us out. Butler brought the car to Saguaro, where the students went to work. 
Alex Stevenson is a student leader on the high school's robotics team. He explains how each car is modified to fit the needs of the kid who will eventually get it. The modification process、uh, really varies depending on kid by kid basis, and we meet the needs of each、uh, kid. That also changes what we use to adapt it. So this one is a little lighter.、Um, we didn't actually have to do a whole lot of electrical work. Typically, we will rewire、uh, the pedals because some kids may lack functionality in their feet.、Um, so we will move that. The button will make a new button, and we'll rewire that and mount it higher, where they can use it with their hands to operate the vehicle. In this case, Stevenson and his fellow students didn't have to deal with all that. So we were just able to focus on the functionality of the car.、Um, sometimes we'll make some structural changes a little to the car. So you see here that we're adding foam blocks.、Um, that's just to keep the kid more secure because、um, the kid is smaller than the seat, and we don't want the kid sliding around when they're operating the car. You know, any potential for injury. So we're adding foam blocks in this case. We are adding the the grab handle to the wheel to make it more operable. We used a Dremel、um, in order to cut out the divots in the axle, so that way it could have a large. Turn radius because that was limiting it previously. Once the modifications are finished, the students test it out. With the car ready to roll, all that's left is to present it to Joshua Kirpin. A couple weeks after the build day, Butler and her colleagues meet the Kirpin family at a park near their house. It's a sunny day, and Joshua and his brother are already playing together when Butler arrives. The students unload the car and show Joshua his new wheels. Joshua is clearly thrilled. He's smiling from ear to ear, and so are his parents. The car revs up, and he waves his arms back and forth, almost overwhelmed. Joshua is an adrenaline junkie. Like, loves the swing, loves being pushed really fast. He has a little like motorized ATV that he loves at home. He can't quite drive it very well, so this is awesome that it's been like customized for him to be able to maneuver it, or that we can control it, which is probably a good safety feature for him.、Um, but he loves stuff like this, and we have a lot of parks in our neighborhood that we love to、um, go to and. Right now, Joshi has not quite learned how to ride a bike, so we still either push him in a stroller or something、um, along those lines. So this will be really awesome that he can have kind of his own fun little transport to go around with us. So I, I'm sure we'll end up using it every day, to be honest. That was Steffi Kirpin, Joshua's mother. I think having you know a, a son with a disability is is tough, and there's definitely the ups and downs. That was Jordan Kirpin. Joshua's dad, who confirms that today was an up, as Joshua goes off on a joyride across the field, you can see him beginning to assert his independence. Good thing his dad has the car's remote on hand to bring him back, just in case. After all, the kid's only five years old, not nearly old enough to drive. For KJZZ News, I'm Nate Boyle. And that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, so much for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a terrific rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org, and you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.